Uh, last week we finished the feeding of the 5,000, that's John chapter 6, and what we saw there was there's a crowd that pursued Jesus in a way that was very enthusiastic, at least from the world's perspectives, but there was also uh, an inadequacy in, in the faith. They, they saw him as a savior, but they saw him as a savior that they wanted, a savior that might lead them to victory over Rome and establish a worldwide Davidic kingdom, usher in a golden age for the Jewish people. But once they learned that Jesus was only interested in freely forgiving their sins, teaching them heavenly things uh, that only one that had stood at the Father's side could know, and offering them eternal life through his person, they rejected him. Only a few disciples remained, uh, and one of those was Judas, a, a hypocrite that would eventually betray Jesus on a Roman cross. So um, between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, about six months have elapsed. Um, there's nothing in, in John about what happens in those six months, but that's uh, certainly recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And we know that because John tells us that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place near the time of Passover. And John chapter 7 begins at the Feast of Booths, uh, which is in the fall. It uh, was about six months after Passover. Um, and we also know that there's uh, six months after John chapter 7 until uh, the, the next Passover that comes, which is when Jesus is crucified. So we're towards the end of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry at this point already. John actually compresses Jesus' uh, ministry quite a bit and really expands the end of Jesus' ministry, especially um, uh, Jesus' final week in, in comparison to the Synoptic Gospels. <clears throat> so in chapter 7 and 8, we have a recording of Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. The, these chapters don't contain any signs. Uh, it's interaction between Jesus and various groups that's really the focus in these chapters. And um, we see probably different incidents that are kind of summarized together in, in this. I've decided to approach this a little bit differently than we've been looking at John so far. We're going to go through John chapter 7 relatively quickly, and then we'll come back and we'll expand some of the bigger issues. And so I think we'll get most of the way through the chapter this week. And if I skip over some stuff, it's because we're going to be coming back to it. Uh, for the first verses, we will kind of finish those up uh, this week. They're more of a transition set of verses, and they kind of stand on their own a little bit. Um, but you know, as we do look at these chapters, I think the, the main idea to be thinking about is the different responses that we see to Jesus from different groups in Jerusalem. Uh, I think that's kind of the theme that holds John's, John chapter 7 and 8 together, and so that's uh, one thing to focus on, and I think a good question to be looking at is why should we believe the claims that Jesus is making? And that's an idea that we're going to come back to. Um, you know, we'll, we'll come to it at different points, and I think I'm going to try to address it fully probably next week. Maybe not fully in that it's a huge topic, but I'll at least uh, do my best with it. So let's take a look at the first verses. We're going to spend a bit, bit of time on this, try to finish this, and then we'll uh, move on to the rest of the chapter where, where Jesus is actually in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews there were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went, al went up also, not publicly, but in private. So, um, the Feast of Booths is often called the Feast of Tabernacles, so they, they mean the same thing. Um, this was a nine-day harvest festival, and this would be the, uh, the festival that would take place kind of after the last harvest, figs, olives, grapes would kind of be in that harvest. Uh, this was an agrarian society, and so most people, you know, indirectly or directly worked in, in agriculture, and so uh, we probably aren't aware of this because the Feast of Booths is mentioned the least in the New Testament, but of the three Jewish feasts, this is actually the big one. Uh, at, at that time. This, this is the most popular one. It was the longest. Um, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll say a little bit more about it. I'm going to come back to that I idea in a little bit. Um, but you know, most Jews would go to Jerusalem at that time. The, the reason it was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is that they would build small tents and they would live in, in those during that time. You know, those that had a house in Jerusalem would actually build a little tent on the roof and, and live in that rather than in, in their house. Uh, that's kind of looking back to the, the Exodus period. Um, as we look at these verses, something really jumps out. Um, you know, the, the first thing that kind of jumps out is you know, his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then I think what jumps out and we're going to look at for quite a bit of uh, this morning is for not, even, for not even his brothers believed in him. Um, so I'd like to start with what Jesus' brothers are trying to say. And here's kind of my best to try to summarize what I think they're, get, they're getting at. If you're going to gain a following, you need to do so where the crowds are. This is a big festival. This is a good opportunity to demonstrate your miracles and to convince your disciples of who you are. Jews from throughout, sorry, Jews from throughout Judea and the rest of the world would, would be present. If you want to be noticed, this is the right time to do it. Um, and so, I think the question that comes up when we look at this next statement um, that his, his brothers make. Uh, Oops, I'm sorry. Let's see if I can go back. Um, about his brothers not believing in, in him. Sorry, this should be letting me go back, but it's not. Um, okay. Um, rather than... Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll get caught up to the slides. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, it's not on the right one. Um, so the, the statement that uh, John makes about Jesus' brothers not believing in him is kind of jarring after what they said, because what they said doesn't sound wrong on the surface. It obviously is, and so we're going to look at, 
at that. But I, I think it's jarring because it's meant to catch our attention and to make us think you know, more deeply uh, about um, why they don't believe when you know, the statement doesn't seem too problematic with a quick reading at least. So I think the place to start is to remind ourselves of the theme of the book. And that's stated at the end of John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. I'll, I'll just go ahead and read this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And what John is really saying is he wants us to understand what authentic faith in Jesus Christ is compared to inauthentic faith, which can come in various forms. And one of those forms of inauthentic faith we, we see demonstrated in his brothers. Um, I think John expects us to be caught off guard a little bit by this statement and, and to think about it. In, in this gospel, John doesn't just tell us what authentic belief is, but he also tells us what it isn't. Um, and if we think back to John chapter 2, you know, Jesus uh, taught in Jerusalem and many of the crowds believed in his name. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to them and it's literally didn't believe in, in them because he knew it was in their hearts. Um, and we, we see that you know, there, there is a belief in this crowd but it's not an authentic belief. And uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3 is kind of an example of what that inauthentic belief is. Um, and, and then we have the crowds in Galilee that followed him. They're uh, very wildly excited about him. They follow him out into the middle of the wilderness without even any, any thought about bringing provisions with them. But um, they, uh, when, when Jesus confronts them, he points out the inadequacy of the fa their faith. They're only after uh, bread. They're not after uh, what he has to offer. And they eventually abandon him when they see that he's not the type of Messiah that they want. So how is it that uh, the statement by Jesus' brothers demonstrates unbelief? Um, presumably, I, th I think it's reasonable to assume that his brothers know his ministry fairly well. They, um, they've probably followed him at least some. They've, they've heard him teach before. But they don't seem to have discerned Jesus' true mission, uh, which Jesus has plainly explained repeatedly in, in the John's gospel at this point. I don't think they understand that, the, that miracles are ineffective at changing hearts. They probably wanted, and this might have even been a subconscious desire on their parts, for you know, Jesus' ministry to be successful um, in, in uh, the way that they pictured at least, uh, so that you know, they would kind of be able to follow him on his coattails and would have some benefits from Jesus gaining po power and popularity. Um, when I looked at this, I found uh, Piper's sermon on this to be the most helpful. And so I'm going to take four points that Piper made and adapt them. I'll, I'll quote from Piper at a few points where I think he just does a better job than I possibly could do in pointing out what's wrong with what's going on with the brothers. And you'll, you'll find those four points in the uh, outline that I've provided. <clears throat> the first one, uh, we, we see in 710, uh, that verse says that, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up also, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus did go to the feast, but he didn't go in the way that they wanted him to go. Um, the way that they wanted him to go would have been a public way. It would have been noticed and actually designed to, to attract crowds. Um, 
And so I, I think that there's hints here that they wanted him to kind of seek the praise of men, and, and Jesus wanted to avoid that uh, as, as he went. And we're going to come back to that. We'll, we'll see a little bit more of that, but that's kind of the first hint that we have of what was wrong with what the, the brothers were asking for. Um, one thing to, to think about is that many uh, devout Jews would have gone to this feast. And so if you're going from Galilee, it, it's a long trip. And first of all, it would kind of make sense to try to go with some other people. It's more enjoyable to travel together than alone. But if you think about the danger of traveling alone, kind of in wilderness in that day, there were thieves and robbers. And it would be dangerous to, uh, to travel alone. And so going in a group would, would kind of make sense. And so this would actually be part of the feast, you know, traveling with your friends and relatives for the several days that it would take to get to Jerusalem each way. Um, and you know, these groups would be large. They would enter Jerusalem publicly. Jesus is choosing to avoid that. The second clue that we see in, in these chapters is that Jesus teaches, but he doesn't perform any signs, uh, which his brothers were requesting that he do. Um, he's deflecting glory from himself, which is exactly the opposite of the what the brothers want. So we've got Jesus going, but the text is emphasizing two differences in how Jesus went compared to what his brothers were asking. He went in private, and he went without performing miracles. Um, the third pointer, and I'm, I'm quoting Piper here, uh, to the nature of their unbelief, Jesus says in the verses, or he says in verses 7 and 8, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. In other words, the world cannot hate you because you are motivated at root by the very thing the world lives for. The world will recognize this and will not be, be feel, and will not feel indicted by you. But they do feel indicted by me. Why? Because I testify uh, about them and I, I tell you um, uh, that to seek your own glory is the mark of falsehood and unreliability and evil. That's what evil is. Doing things for your own glory and not for God's glory. But this is what you love and that's what they love. So uh, to try to restate that, Jesus' brothers are telling Jesus how to become more famous and how to have more influence within Judaism. This isn't difficult to imagine that they see you know, an opportunity for their own benefit you know, if Jesus were to achieve more fame and, and more power within that, uh, that religion and within that uh, country. And I think that's where their motivation is. They're not motivated by God's glory at all with what they're requesting, but they're motivated by their own advancement. And I'll, I'll quote Piper again here on the final point. The final pointer to the nature of their unbelief comes from John 5, and here it is made explicit uh, by, that seeking, uh, by that seeking your own glory makes belief in Jesus impossible. So in, in John 5, uh, 43 through 44, I have come in my Father's name, and you, do not, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? To Piper, this is the most one of the most important verses in the Gospel of John, uh, at least for his heart, he says. You cannot believe in Jesus if your root desire is to be praised by other people. Pride, at its core, is craving for human approval. And Jesus is saying that if pride is at the root, faith can't be at the root. Faith at its core, is humble gladness in the grace of God. 
it's not driven by a need uh, or a desire for human praise. It's driven by a thankful joy that God is for us when we deserve no praise at all. That is why uh, the brothers of Jesus did not see uh, and did not have, or that's, that's what the brothers of Jesus did not see and did not have. They had not yet been born again. The root of their joy was the praise of man and not the praise of God. So I think a, an important question for us is do we need to worry about this type of unbelief today and what might it look like? And you know, it, it's uh, been a, a huge problem for Christians through the ages. It certainly is a problem for us today. One of the places of many that we could look is you know, the church growth movement. You, you see that uh, specific pastors, their, their names get built up and it could, you know, even for very good pastors with solid motivations, the, the pride that can kind of come in building a ministry and having one's name uh, built up can be a huge uh, danger. Uh, you know, no matter how, how well motivated someone is. Um, within the church growth movement, though, it, one of the focuses in that movement especially is to look at what can Christianity do for me with the idea that we can try to offer benefits of Christianity to, to attract unbelievers into churches for those benefits. That's a lot more attractive than I am the bread of life. And we especially live in an age where church attendance is socially acceptable. And in fact, being connected to a church can be advantageous. You, you can use it for business and social connections. You can get great food at, at pot providences. Um, there's, you, you can um, benefit from going to church. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it can present a danger that people might start going to church more for that than because they're hungry to understand better the Word of God and to you know, feast on the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I've, I've kind of tried to summarize this. Let me uh, read what I wrote down when I was writing this study. Christ offers forgiveness of sins, peace with God, communion with God, and eternal life. The world doesn't want a forgiveness of sin, at least not one that entails forsaking sin. The world wants to sin with impunity. The world loathes the idea of submitting to the will of God um, and won't accept you know, uh, any terms uh, of peace with God that uh, you know, involve God's rights as creator to determine right and wrong. The world is much more interested in this life than the next life and has no taste whatsoever for spending an eternity with a God that the world abhors. We present something that's infinitely less than what Jesus is offering when we're trying to present Christianity in a way that's focused on this world. And um, if we substitute a practical message of self-improvement or any message that focus on, focuses on how Christianity might impact the world and our life, we're presenting something other than Christianity. Uh, Jesus' brothers, I think, encouraged Jesus to pursue a, an obvious path to worldly success, but not, a, not the path that the Father had laid out for him. And I, so I think that's what's wrong with the, um, the motivation of the brothers. Jesus, uh, next part of his response, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is al always here. Um, oops, and I uh, advanced farther. So we're, we're going to be focusing on my time has not yet come. D.A. Carson's commentary, I think, had a really good paraphrase of that. Uh, his paraphrase reads, This isn't the time for me to go. You guys can go whenever you want. 
And I realize that doesn't quite fit the uh, way that the ESV translate the, this, but evidently it's just as likely a translation in the Greek. Um, so I think what Jesus is saying that you know, uh, as unbelievers, they're unconcerned with following God's plan. Uh, well, Jesus must follow God's plan. And so I think that interpretation is a little bit preferable to me since it doesn't make Jesus appear disingenuous for um, not a, or unresponsive about not going. You know, he, he was going to go to the feast. He simply wasn't going to go at the time and in the, the way that they wanted him to go. But I, I think there might be something else going on here. Uh, I, I didn't exactly find this in any of the commentaries. So uh, on the other hand, I, th I think it makes good enough sense. Take this with a grain of salt. But I'd, I'd like to kind of step back a little bit and look at the Jewish feasts. Um, you, we've, we've mentioned the travel to the, the feasts was normally in large groups. There's singing. But there's also a very public arrival in Jerusalem with other worshipers. And you know, we, we kind of have a little glimpse of that with you know, Luke's account where uh, when Jesus was 12, you know, his family traveled to Jerusalem for a feast and he stuck around talking to, uh, to people in the temple, to, talking to teachers and scribes in the temple, and his family didn't notice he was gone for three days. Well, presumably, you know, he was with a large group and they figured he was off with friends or relatives and that's probably why they didn't notice him because otherwise they would have. Um, uh, anyway, the, the Feast of Booths, uh, I think, isn't the right time for Jesus to publicly enter Jerusalem. And so let's look at the three feasts. That would be Passover, Pentecost, and Booths or Tabernacles. Um, these are all centered around the agricultural year. And for an agrarian society, that certainly isn't surprising. Passover would have been the uh, first, and that was a, a festival that took place before any of the major crops were harvested. Pentecost sometimes is referred to as the Feast of First Fruits. And that occurred when the first of the crops were starting to come in. And the Feast of Booths occurred uh, when all the harvest was in. It was the last of, and the greatest of the three festivals. And so the Jewish mindset would have seen them in that order. They're also in that order in the Jewish calendar year. But I, I think the connection to the agricultural year is probably even more important. Um, th these are in the Old Testament. And so we, as Christians, would expect that they're going to point to Jesus uh, in, in a way, and I, I think they do. Last week, we, we actually looked at how Passover points to the work that Christ accomplished. Um, you know, it, it focuses on the Passover lamb, whose blood covers God's people from God's judgment. And as, as we're going to see, Passover, I think, very clearly points to Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, so it's appropriate that Jesus be crucified at Passover, and, and he is, of course. Pentecost, uh, that celebrates the beginning of the harvest. It's also associated with the beginning of the church age and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's very easy for me to see that connection to the beginning of the first, to the church age when people are starting to come in to the church. The harvest is beginning. Um, and the Feast of Booths, the most important of the, those festivals, doesn't really uh, point to anything that we see yet in the New Testament. Uh, and that's why it's not mentioned much in the New Testament in comparison to the other two festivals. Um, but I, I don't think it takes much imagination to see the, that feast pointing to the finished harvest, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the celebration of God's people over the finished harvest and their ultimate deliverance at the end of the age. 
And so I think looking at things that way, we see why it's not Jesus' time to publicly celebrate the feast. His time is going to be Passover, which is six months away. And that's when he's going to publicly celebrate the feast and he'll publicly enter Jerusalem. But this isn't the right feast for him to do that. Um, the next thing that we come to in, in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, oh, darn, um, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Uh, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet come. Um, why doesn't the world hate Jesus' brothers? And if they're unbelievers, fundamentally they don't need to do or say anything that shines light on the world and it, its sinful tendencies and its rejection of the things of God. Jesus, because he only says and does what the will uh, of the Father is, does convict the world of its sins and its uh, uh, wrong mindset. So I think a, a, a question as we read John, is Jesus saying that the world never hates an unbeliever and always hates an unbeliever? Because that doesn't seem to match our experience. You know, Billy Graham was uh, respected in his time and I think there's much to, to that's positive about his ministry and the message that he preached. Um, I think if you were to pull people, very few people would say that they hated Billy Graham, um, just as an example. And I would kind of say no and yes uh, in answer to those questions. Um, First of all, an unbeliever can certainly do things that cause the world to hate them. The world hates lots of people. <laughs> um, and it, sometimes the, the world, I think, has good reason to hate someone. But unbelievers at least don't have to have the world hating them. They might choose to go in directions that cause that, but they don't have to. But as Christians, the, to the extent that we imitate Jesus, we are telling the world that it's evil. And we testify... Uh, to you know, spiritual truth that the world seeks to suppress. Um, to the extent that the world sees us living authentically as Christians and to the extent that we do speak that truth, we will make the world uneasy and it's going to result in hatred. It might not be overt, but um, you know, we, we always will counter resistance from the world. And I, I think John is kind of lumping all of that into his term hatred. Um, so I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Uh, the, the next verse, verse 11. Um, it, it, we're going to transition now. I've kind of finished through verse 10. 10 where we're not going to come back to that. That's kind of, a, I, I see as a transition to Jesus arriving at the Feast of Booths. The rest of 7 and 8 will be Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And so we're going to look at that. I'm going to go through this a little bit more briefly. I'll unpack some things, but I'm going to save some things for later, in part because John comes to the, the same idea several times in, in these sections. So if it seems like I'm skipping over something, I, I hope I'll come back to it, and if there's something that you'd, you'd like to see addressed more fully, send me an email, and I'd be happy to, um, to say a little bit more about it next week. Uh, I think verses 11 through 13 are kind of a transition. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said that he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. I think the main point of these verses is to kind of set the stage for what's going to happen in these chapters. Jesus is on the minds of everyone, uh, from the religious leaders who you know, see him as a problem and a threat, 
to everyone on the street who is wondering, you know, is this the Messiah? Is this the person that God has promised that you know, I'm expecting to come and you know, overthrow the Romans and establish a, a, a Davidic kingdom? Um, he's well known both for uh, you know, the previous miracle that he performed in Jerusalem that uh, was you know, healing a paralytic on the Sabbath, and that miracle is going to be very important in these chapters. But a lot of people in Jerusalem at, at this particular time had traveled there, many from Judea. And so a lot of people would be familiar with the many miracles that he worked there. And the rest of Jerusalem would certainly have heard about these miracles. Um, the, the focus uh, of, of interest about Jesus is whether he is the Messiah and um, the, the claims that he's making. I think to some, they, they see this as liberation from Rome. To others, they, they see this as a threat. Uh, the Roman government was rather tolerant by the standards of the ancient worlds in many respects, but not when it came to rebellion. Anyone that uh, they, they saw as a threat would be dealt with quickly and, and severely. And the people that managed to rise to the top of the leadership in Jerusalem are ones that knew how to try to keep the peace with the Romans. And so keeping that peace was kind of at the forefront of their minds. Um, so uh, moving on to verse 14. <clears throat> About the middle of the feast, uh, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know that whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks glory in him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Um, in that day, religious leaders would learn from uh, an important rabbi. Uh, if you wanted to become a religious leader, that was what you would need to do. It was kind of an apprenticeship in a sense. You would be, become a disciple of that rabbi. You would uh, study with them for years, and you know, eventually you know, that rabbi would kind of judge that you had learned enough to start uh, teaching on your own. Um, and it, it, the result probably isn't too far from what you would get from a seminary education today. I mean, I think this seminary system where you study from a number of different people um, you know, who have their own strengths and their own weaknesses, and you, you'll get more perspectives, I think, is a better system, but it's not all that different. And so a, a trained rabbi would demonstrate their knowledge uh, that they would, would have from their training that other people wouldn't, not just by quoting scripture, but they would also quote different important rabbinical teaching. Um, that would give that uh, trained rabbi kind of an air of authority that you wouldn't be able to get without you know, having training. Um, and we know from the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus taught the scripture, he, he taught it more effectively than a trained rabbi would, uh, and he didn't have that training. But he didn't back up his interpretations by citing rabbinical sources. He either did it by clear scriptural arguments or by asserting his own authority. You know, one of the uh, phrases that you'll hear in the Synoptic Gospels is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Um, you know, a rabbi wouldn't do that. A rabbi would appeal to uh, other authorities. Um, and so that, that's a way that Jesus' teaching, I think, is very different. 
Um, there's two ways of taking a look at the statement that we, we see in these verses. Um, the first would be kind of just an expression of wonderment. How is it that you, th this guy, Jesus, this, is able to have a superior grasp of the scripture without the benefit of study in comparison to the teachers that we're used to hearing? Um, but there's a second meaning that I, I think is actually probably the more likely, and you'll see that as we see what follows. And uh, that would be that the, this is really kind of a question about where Jesus is getting his authority to teach. Um, what, what gives him the right to teach scripture without having training. And so we're going to return to this, but take a look at the verses that follow and, and keep that in mind. See which of those two explanations fits a little bit better as, as we kind of pick up again at John uh, 7.19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from uh, Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The, the first thing that I think jumps out there that I'd, I'd like to just kind of deal with is the statement of the crowd, you have a demon. Um, and so I'm going to step back and give a little bit of historical context. The, um, the way that I'm going to interpret this might sound like uh, I'm just trying to avoid uh, the idea of demonic possession because it's not popular in modern thinking. And that, that's not correct. Uh, so I'll, I'll start by think, saying that demonic possession is certainly genuine. We see it in the Gospels, but I don't think that's exactly what's being talked about here. Um, we, we need to recognize that the way that the Bible uh, is written is it communicates in the language of its time. And it doesn't go out of its way to try to correct uh, the, the way that people would, would talk and refer to things in, in that particular time. So just to give you an, an example, you, you'll find this in the Old Testament. There was an, uh, a thinking, at least, in your Hebrew culture that you know, emotions originated in different organs in the abdominal cavity. Um, and so the deepest emotions were thought to come from the kidneys. Uh, and so th the Bible actually talks about feel feelings coming from kidneys at, at various points. Our translations kind of smooth over this, uh, usually. But you know, the, the Bible isn't trying to tell us where emotions are coming from. The Bible is talking about a situation where someone is having intense emotion. It's using the language uh, of the day to communicate that. Um, so anyway, at, at this period, you know, anyone that had serious mental illness, if they were to go to a reputable phys physician, the prescription would be demonic possession. And so I, I think what the crowds are saying is that you're crazy. Um, and I, I don't think it's much more than that here. Um, and I, I will point out that both D.A. Carson, I th think who's fairly conservative, as well as John Calvin read uh, verse 20 that way. Um, but uh, not much more to it than that. So if we get back to 19 through 24, let me kind of try to summarize what it's saying. I think Jesus is showing the crowd that they're choosing to reject him. Reject him. They're not rejecting him, on, rejecting him on valid grounds, but they're rejecting him because they don't want to accept that his teaching is true. 
they, they do see the, the value of the law, but they are choosing to, uh, to break that law by seeking his death. Uh, they will break the Sabbath law to observe circumcision, but then they can't accept Jesus breaking uh, the, the same Sabbath law to cure a, a man's entire infirmity, to, to heal his body and to make a man's body well. And so their judgment, if, if anyone were to step back and r rationally look at it, it's self-apparently inconsistent in, in Jesus' case. And it's not because, it's because they're not exercising fair judgment. It's because that they don't want to accept what he is and their minds are looking for reasons to reject him. Um, J.C. Ryle, I think, had a really good paraphrase of this, and so I'm going to go ahead and read that. Even among yourselves, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath day when it happens to be the eighth day after that child's birth, in order uh, that the law of circumcision, uh, which your great lawgiver Moses, Moses sanctioned and reordained, in order that that law should not be broken. You thus admit that the whole principle that there is some work which may be done on the Sabbath uh, exists. It is then just and fair to be, sorry, is it then just and fair to be angry with me because I have done a far greater work uh, to a man on the Sabbath than the work of circumcision? I have not wounded his body. I have made him perfectly whole. I have not done a purifying work on a particular part of him, but I have restored his whole body to health and strength. I have not done a work of necessity to one single member, but a work of necessity and benefit to the whole man. So Jesus' point is that they're not evaluating him fairly or, rational, or fairly or rationally, but instead they're showing, demonstrating in a way that anyone can look to and see that they are unjustly re, uh, looking for reasons to reject him and unjustly looking for reasons to condemn him. Um, this, at least to me, brought up a, a, a little incident that's in the, the um, a uh, book called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. Um, the main character in, in that book is a software engineer, and there's a, a little section where it talks about you know, his career where he developed this cutting-edge software program. You know, this was written back in the late 80s. That you were able to input all of the information that you had about a particular scenario, and the program would analyze it and would come up with the best possible uh, solution to that. And unfortunately for him, that program proved to be really unpopular. Nobody liked it. The problem is that it never reached the conclusions that they wanted. And so to try to salvage this, he realized that he could take most of the program and he could revise it just a little bit and uh, rework the code so that you put in the solution that you want and then you put in all the available information and the program would work that information into the most logical uh, argument for the the outcome that you were after. And of course, the program was wildly successful. <laughs> um, the, <clears throat> I, the, the point, I think, is, is really well made. I think Douglas Adams, if you have ever read him, really does have a good understanding of how the human mind works. Uh, we're, we're very prone to deciding what we want to be true and then looking for reasons to support that predetermined conclusion. And we, we do that in a, a range of things. Uh, and I think this is particularly true uh, when it comes to Jesus Christ, where our minds naturally are wired to reject Jesus Christ. Um, not only can we not trust our feelings, we can't even trust our logic without the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to Jesus' beauty and his desirability as a perfect savior. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I am all in favor of, of logic and reason. And the, the, I think these are uh, really important things that every Christian should seek to cultivate and should seek to enhance. But what I think that we need is a good solid caution that we, we need to understand our minds, that no matter how well trained they are, we will distort logic and reason in favor of what we want to conclude. And we need to watch out for that. Um, the most gifted and the best trained minds in Jerusalem that day uh, used this, you know, uh, training their uh, you know, very good intellectual abilities to look for ways to kill Jesus. And that's something that we need to uh, keep at the forefront of our minds. The fallen human mind never wants to recognize its complete dependence on, on God's mercy. Um, I think I, I don't have time to get into the next section, so we're going to go ahead and stop there. Uh, I do have time for a quick question or two, though. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you have opened our minds to the beauty of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would come to see Christ as more beautiful and more desirable and that you would work on continuing to heal our minds to see th uh, that he is someone that's worthy of being sought and that we would, instead of looking for reasons to reject him, that we would understand more and more who he is and we would uh, feast on this uh, wonderful food that you have provided in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.